World War I was one of the most brutal wars in the history of mankind. It's a war that changed the course of human history and set humanity on a charter, which we can still see wakes from today. Many movies have been made about this infamous point in time, but maybe none other more affecting than our subject today. A movie equal parts war and courtroom drama. It comes almost four decades after the war's end, and from a true master of cinema. So if you're like me, and you enjoy film and the impact and emotions they convey, then grab a glass of your preferred liquid and join me for the next little while. For me, that's a bottle of Labatt Blue from our friends in the great city of Toronto. So sit back, relax, and let's talk about the love of film. Welcome to Glazed Cinema. Colonel Dax in the French army during World War I, who is tasked with a fruitless operation by his ranking officer. Without any choice and recognizing the hopelessness and likely sacrifice of half his men, he orders the attack, leading to an unsuccessful outcome. The commanding general, wanting to send a message, orders for three random soldiers within the colonel's group to be tried for cowardice. The colonel, disagreeing with the charge and the systematic practice, stands up to defend his soldiers during a trial prosecuted by his two commanding officers, which threatens the men's very lives. Paths of Glory is loosely based on a book of the same name written by Humphrey Cobb in 1935. A novel about actual events that happened in France in 1915 called The Suwain Corporal's Affair. It is one of the most appalling of the documented acts in which soldiers were executed by their own army. In doing research for this episode, I stumbled upon some statistics that were pretty haunting. I learned that this thought process of executing soldiers by firing squad to send a message to others to dissuade cowardice was not a rare or selective affair. I learned that it was quite the opposite, in fact, which really saddened me. Some countries during World War I didn't record this practice very well, if at all, like Austria-Hungary and Russia, for example, so we don't know a clear total across the war effort. The countries that did record this macabre practice does give a rather horrifying insight into just how common it was. Between France, Bulgaria, and Italy alone, more than 2,200 soldiers were executed in this manner. Other countries like Great Britain and its territories 
Belgium, Germany, and the United States practice this fewer, but their combined total is estimated at around 400, 306 of those coming from Great Britain and its territories. It's a bit of history that most countries hide away, with few monuments attributed to the men executed by their own. I can't help but be saddened by these executions. I mean, these were young men fighting an absolutely brutal and chaotic war. Trapped in trenches, gnawed by rats, surrounded by dead that they couldn't bury, and bombarded by shellings and under threat of biological weapons prior to the Geneva Protocol. It was an awful place to be from any side of no man's land, but to worry about being killed by your own on top of that, just because you're scared, makes an already unthinkable situation so much more grave. Paths of Glory plays on that subject, time period, and mindset. The director asked Jim Thompson, his screenwriter on The Killing, to compose the script. Thompson's screenplay rewrote the events of the book to fit a new aesthetic, highlighting a minor character as the lead. Colonel Dax is an intelligent, resilient, and honest man who fights alongside the men he is leading in the trenches. Fighting for France, Colonel Dax is and his men fight to survive between the wooden, clad walls and amidst the fog of war. Dax is also a lawyer and understands how to strategically approach tough situations. When ordered to take Ant Hill, however, he finds it difficult to see any end in which he doesn't lose a lot of his men in the process. With little choice, however, he carries out the attack which, as expected, does not end in the way his commanding generals had hoped. This leads to a scapegoating of three soldiers who are tried for cowardice, and who General Dax must defend. Paths of Glory is a film by one of the best film directors of all time, Stanley Kubrick. Released in 1957, it's the third film in his impressive catalog. Up to the point of releasing our subject today, Kubrick cut his teeth behind the camera with The Killer's Kiss and The Killing. These two efforts were stylized takes on film noir, which in the mid-50s was quite popular among audiences. With Paths of Glory, however, Kubrick takes his first step into cinematic genius. Exploring complex themes, which results in a multi-layered and thought-provoking film. A trend he would not abandon moving forward. When casting the film, the first choice of lead actor was Gregory Peck. Despite being interested in working on the project, the actor was busy starring in a play that had just debuted. Several actors were approached to play the part as well, but they were all either busy or uninterested. Eventually, it made its way to Kirk Douglas, who expressed immediate interest, but did have some reservations, which he voiced to Kubrick, stating, Stanley, I don't think this film will ever make a nickel, but we have to make it. By that time, Douglas was already a popular star, 
having been cast as the lead in several movies before 57. Pictures like The Champion, Bad and the Beautiful, and Ace in the Hole all showcased his skill and aptitude to capture audiences. He recognized the poignant and influence that the message had, and thus felt he needed to be involved. He also knew, however, that the subject Kubrick was going for wouldn't pull audiences into theaters in thralls. He was accurate in his commentary as well. At the time, more than a decade after World War II, studios were not interested in producing more war films. In fact, when they approached MGM about the film, one executive stated, enough with war films, their death at the box office. This didn't stop their momentum though. In fact, Douglas was so moved by the screenplay that he took it to United Artists for financial backing. After some negotiations, United Artists agreed to the conditions proposed by Douglas and his agent, a deal that favored them considerably. In the deal, Douglas's company got the rights to filming, while also dedicating one-third of the project's budget to Douglas's agent. The deal was agreed upon between both parties and was presented to Kubrick and his producer, Harris, for approval. With no other option on the table and several pre previous rejections, they accepted the deal and the project was greenlit for filming based on the script. There are many things that set this movie apart from other anti-war movies. Certainly the fact that it's a country acting on the punishment of its own soldiers in such a harsh way certainly sets it apart from others. However, the thing that makes this movie different in a more subtle way is the fact that it's as much a sentiment on war as it is the sentiment against the system of war. Kubrick's delivery of these kinds of sentiment is phenomenal as well. Kubrick was a big believer in not letting his audiences off the hook and making them think about what was going on or what an outcome means. I've talked about this in a few episodes in the past and how affecting this is for the audience and a technique used by other greats of cinema. I found a quote by Kubrick in which he explains his thoughts on getting something across his audience in this manner. Quote, if we really want to communicate something, even if it's just an emotion or an attitude, let alone an idea, the least effective and least enjoyable way is directly. But if you can get people to the point where they have to think a moment what it is you're getting at and then discover it, that thrill of discovery goes straight to the heart. End quote. It's a technique we can see throughout Paths of Glory, in both big and small ways, but I would argue that almost the entire movie acts on this belief. All of the themes and points are made clear, never using direct methods, but subtle ones instead. One instance is in the beginning, when we witness the meeting between two generals, General Brulard and Miro. 
General Brular is the commanding general planning a high-risk assault on a strategic position called Ant Hill to gain ground on the enemy. The discussion takes place in a palace of opulence. Polished floors, immaculate furnishings, large windows, and decorative frames around grand pieces of art. Sitting comfortably in chairs drinking tea, the two talk of battle, which hinges on the poor men living and dying in the trenches far away. Miro is hesitant at first, stating that Ant Hill has been held by the enemy for over a year, and that the effort would mean certain doom. However, after Brulard flashes the chance of promotion, he quickly changes his tune and accepts the offer. We can see from a short scene like that a lot of things, like the dispassionate command and the corrupt sense of duty. Things that will be intertwined throughout the movie, in big and small ways, even if it's just a facial gesture. Kubrick was a visionary and a perfectionist. He is known for many things. Among them are the amount of takes he used to get a scene just right. In Paths of Glory, there is one dinner scene, which I won't discuss what it is about, for that would be a spoiler. But the scene was shot 68 times to get the outcome that was in the director's mind. If you can think for a moment about what all that entails, it's hard to hear the number 68 and think of what is behind that. But it's pretty intense, especially in the film era. That means 68 times he yelled action and cut. 68 times the actors and cameras had to be repositioned, and quite a few times that the film had to be unloaded and reloaded with new film into the camera. The aesthetic choices of Paths of Glory are deliberate. It's shot in black and white and told in a very realistic point of view. The black and white acts like newsreels from the time, which were also black and white without the use of color film. And the use of realism was to make the audiences sympathize with those accused and with Colonel Dax trying to defend them. There are three men accused of cowardice and put on trial with penalty of death. Those men are Private Pierre Arnaud, played by Joe Turkle, Private Maurice Farrell, played by Timothy Carey, and Corporal Philippe Paris, played by Ralph Meeker. All three men are chosen for different reasons. Farrell is chosen because he is a socially undesirable man. Paris is chosen to keep him from testifying against a commanding officer. And Arnaud is randomly chosen amongst the crowd. The three men share a jail cell and testify one by one in a grand hall amongst their commanding officers with Colonel Dax defending them. With each man, they sit down in a circle of guards and plead their case. 
I learned that during my research, the reason why Maurice Farrell, played by Timothy Carey, doesn't have as many scenes in the courtroom is because he was actually removed from the project midway through filming. Apparently, he had faked his own kidnapping with a publicity stunt and was fired from the project, and the scenes that they had planned on him playing in were removed from the script. Thankfully, they had shot a lot of the more important scenes with him already in there, but in certain sequences where you see only the back of him, that is actually a double playing for him as he was already removed at that point. You may recognize Pierre Arnaud, who plays the seemingly unlucky man who is picked at random, but he plays Lloyd, the infamous barkeep behind the bar in the Overlook Hotel in Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. There are a lot of great and moving scenes in this film, but one of the most iconic is when Dax leads his men on their attack for Ant Hill. It's a scene that used a tracking shot, which Kubrick loved to utilize throughout his career. You can see this technique in a lot of his films, ranging from 2001 A Space Odyssey, Full Metal Jacket, The Shining, and many more. If you're unfamiliar with what a tracking shot is, it's essentially when the camera is placed on a dolly and moves, or in other words, tracks its subject, usually for a longer period of time than an average sequence entails. Some of these shots can be done moving sideways, forwards, or backwards. In this particular scene, we follow Colonel Dax as he travels through the trenches to gain position to call his men to battle. The camera moves backward, facing Kirk Douglas head-on, as he walks through his men aligned against the two opposing walls. He looks apprehensive, nervous, but confident all at once. Strolling through his men, we hear and see the explosions of the battle as his men hurtle to cover against the walls as he walks tall among them. Coming to the end of the line, we hear a man counting down as Colonel Dax places a whistle in his mouth, climbs a ladder over the wall, and whistles his men onward, waving his arm in a forward motion. It's a great scene, and one that carries a lot of weight just for the things that are unsaid, as there is absolutely no dialogue other than the men counting down. Kirk Douglas did a fantastic job portraying the embittered colonel, and is one of the many reasons why this film works so well. In my opinion, it is one of his better performances in his career. I love how he emotes, delivers his lines, and carries himself as Dax. I found it really affecting. It's a superb performance, and one worth viewing and appreciating. With a great cast and director, the film has quite the impact on screen that has lasted for generations. 
one scene is particularly moving, and it features a bar filled with soldiers and a young lady. It's the only scene with a woman pictured in the entire film. The young lady is brought into the bar, and afraid she sings a song which moves the entire bar, and the men sing along with her in beautiful harmony. The woman eventually became Stanley Kubrick's wife, and they met on this project, which is a pretty cool factoid as well. Passive Glory ended up grossing around $18 million from a budget that was about $8 million to start. It caused quite a stir upon release, getting critical claim and critical outrage alike. No stronger outrage was felt than that of the Swiss government who banned the film completely. They felt that the movie offended France, its army, and its judicial system. France itself did not ban the film, but instead didn't distribute it. In some areas of France, it wasn't shown until 1975, almost two decades later. Even the United States didn't show it in military establishments. I saw Paths of Glory for the first time when I was 22 years old, and the subject captured my curiosity. I was on a bit of a Cooper kick, watching his older films that I hadn't seen up to that point. When I watched Paths of Glory for the first time, it was on Turner Classic Movies. I had heard a lot about the film, and TCM does such a great job of introducing films they air with some tidbits before the movie. As the film actually began, I could sense myself being captured by that initial juxtaposition of worlds, one which the generals reside and plan in opulence far removed from the battlefield and the dirty trenches themselves. Between the performances, camera shots, and dialogue, I became more invested with the three accused and Colonel Dax. And by the end, I was floored by what I had seen. For some, the ending of this movie might feel a bit bitter of a conclusion. And without spoiling anything, I'll leave you with this. That, my friends, is the exact point. If you'd like to watch Paths of Glory for yourself, you can find it on a variety of streaming services. At the time of this recording, you can find it on YouTube, Google Play, Apple TV, Prime Video, and Vudu for $3.99 to rent. This episode was written and recorded by me, Brian Kinney, with music by Kevin McLeod. If you like this podcast, tell your friends or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Each week, there will be new content, including hints about episodes before they air. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website at glazedcinema.com. 
There you'll find more info about the show. And a place to submit ideas for future episodes. For film fans who are hearing impaired, our blog page features each episode in written form as well. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope to see you next time with another beverage and another fine film on Glazed Cinema. <laughs>